Good morning. It's so good to be here with you this morning. Uh, invite you to take out your Bibles, open them up, and to the book of Mark. We're going to be reading there in just a moment. As you're doing that, I just want to say what a glorious day it is for us to be together here to remember the death of Jesus, to remember His resurrection. And as Joe pointed out, this is our, this is our habit, our tradition, our command and example that we see from the disciples, not, or from the apostles, not once a year, not once a quarter, not once a month, but each and every first day of the week. And so for many in the world today, this is a, a very specially, special day, a very holy day. And for me, this is a very special and a holy day. Because this is the day that God has said, I want you to come together and I want you to remember my son and I want you to remember that he is coming. And we will do that again next week. And we invite you next week to come back and celebrate our Easter service and the week after and the week after. Because I believe that was the example the apostles set each and every day of their lives. Remembering the death of Christ. Remembering what that meant to them and walking in such a way as to show that to others. And I want to talk about how they did that and how Jesus did that. In our, in our study today, our reading is not going to be what you typically expect to find on a typical Easter service. Um, but but I, I do believe that what we see in this reading is something that Jesus wants us to see every time we contemplate His life, every time we contemplate His death, every time we contemplate what that should mean to us. I believe we see what He is, uh, what, what he is exemplifying for us in the passage that we're going to read from Mark. Several weeks ago, we began this look at, at, at the book of Mark, and it became very obvious from the very first sentence of the book, Mark has a clear purpose. I want you to know who Jesus of Nazareth is. Jesus of Nazareth was not just a carpenter. Jesus of Nazareth was not just a good man. He was not just a prolific teacher. He was the Son of God. And so Mark begins his gospel with this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And, and as he is hammering that point home over and over again, we saw in chapter 8 that his disciples have come to understand that. When, when, when Peter is asked, he makes that great confession in chapter 8 when Jesus says, who do you say I am? He says, yeah, I say you are the Christ. And you know what? A lot of people didn't believe that that day. And a lot of people today don't believe that. And truth be told, you don't have to believe that. But not believing that doesn't make it any less true. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. And because of that fact, that means there is ramifications in our lives as to what we will do with Him. And so He begins to tell them, once they've come to this understanding, I, I am who I said I was. I am the Son of God. He begins to tell them, now, I've got to die. And for the disciples, I always I picture this scene from a movie with them looking at Him and saying, inconceivable! How can you possibly be the God, the, the, the Son of God, the Christ, and you have to die? I can't understand that. I won't allow that. I'm going to fight against that. And they're struggling with this, and Jesus is trying to get them to see. And that brings us to where we are in Mark chapter 9. In verse 30, I want to read 11 verses with you. Mark chapter 9, verse 30 through 41, and just see what he is unpacking for them there. Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man 
is being betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. Then he came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now John answered him saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name. And we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him. For no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. There are three lessons that I would like us to learn from this reading today. Three lessons that will impact and change the service and the way that we walk before God and with one another. And the first of those three things that becomes abundantly clear in this account is the fact that there was a great misunderstanding revolving around the death of Christ. As I said, Jesus has had multiple discussions at this point with His followers on this very topic. I am going to die. I am going to be betrayed. I am going to suffer terrible things. And I am going to be raised up on the third day. And they have such a hard time comprehending this. Why? Why do you have to die? If you are the Son of God, you spoke everything into creation, why can't you just snap your fingers and everything be good? Why do you have to die? That doesn't make sense. Certainly, this can't be right. And if this was such a hard thing for them to understand, being in the presence of Jesus, having Him describe this over and over again to them personally, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that it's equally hard today for people to understand why Jesus had to die. So many have misunderstandings about His death today. In fact, in the book of Mark, up to this point, Mark has been has been revealing through his own way that Jesus is the Son of God. But starting in chapter 9 and going all the way to chapter 13, he is going to not only talk about the glory of Christ as the Son of God, but he's going to intermingle this conversation about the reason Jesus had to die. This becomes a prominent part of his gospel for the next several chapters. And that's because he needed the readers to know, and we need to know, That for us to connect with Jesus as the Son of God, we have to connect with Him in His death. We have to connect with the cross. We have to have an intimate connection with that. And that's why prior to all of this happening, Jesus spoke in chapter 8 saying, if you want to follow Me, whoever desires to come after Me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross and follow Me. So maybe you've read that and you go, you know, I've got questions on that. Because that's a hard saying. That is tough. The disciples didn't understand it. I don't understand. I've got questions. That's okay. 
If his apostles have questions, we should expect to have questions too. But let's not be like them. Let's not let fear keep us from the truth. Did you notice that? Verse 32, they were afraid to ask Jesus. I don't understand what's going on here, but I certainly am not going to ask the Son of God because that, that just fills me with too much fear. Now before we're too hard on them and say, well, how could you possibly be afraid of Jesus? Recognize that that's still true today for many of us. There are times in my life where I have been afraid to seek the truth because I knew that it was going to be uncomfortable. I knew that it was going to call me to do hard things that I really didn't want to do. To say things to people that I didn't want to say. And so, I'll just be in the dark about this. I'll just be ignorant about this. And what that is, is fear. Controlling us. Guiding us. The same way the disciples were were being controlled and guided by fear. And what did that do? What did that cause in them? As we read on, we see that it led them to fighting. It caused them to war with one another. To be bitter with one another. Fear never draws us closer to God. Now, reverence, respect, that sort of fear, awe, that can draw us closer to God. But fear, being afraid, is not a spirit that comes from the Lord. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7, God did not give you a spirit of fear, but of power, of, of dunamis. That's that word that we use for dynamite. Now, he, he gave you a spirit of power and love and self-control or a sound mind. If we are afraid of the truth, afraid to come to God because of what that might mean, we need to know that's not God working in us. That's Satan trying to keep us away from Him because he knows that's where the truth will be. That's where victory will be found. Fear does not lead to blessings and to peace. It leads to fighting. Fighting within. Fighting with others. That's what they're doing. They're arguing. And they're not arguing over, you, you know, you, you go ask him what he meant by that. You go ask him. Or they're not arguing saying, well, I think he meant this. I think he meant that. They're not arguing over the problem. They're arguing over something completely different. What are they arguing over? Who is going to be the greatest? That's their argument. Who is going to have the most value? So let's just paint the picture here. You have the 12 disciples walking. You have Peter, Andrew, James and John, Philip, Matthew, Thomas, Bartholomew, James, the less, Simon, Thaddeus, Judas. You know, I didn't quite get them in order. I've forgotten the song that we teach our kids as little children. But I think that was all 12. You have them walking together and you have these 12 disciples saying, which one of us is going to be greatest? Maybe it's Peter. Maybe it's going to be Peter because just a chapter ago, maybe Peter is reminding them, Jesus asked all of us, who am I? And I'm the one that spoke up and said, you're the Christ. To which I wonder if they would respond, yeah, but then like in the same breath, didn't you also offend Jesus? Didn't He turn right around and call you Satan because you rebuked Him and are trying to stop this process? I don't think it's you, Peter. No, no, maybe, maybe it's James and John. Aren't these, these the two brothers that are the closest to, to Jesus? They're always around Him. Seems like at a, his, his inner three, they're always two-thirds of that group. The sons of thunder. That's going to be the greatest. Or maybe you had one that even tempted to say, you know, I think I'm the greatest because I'm in charge of the money. I'm Judas. I have the money. I'm the greatest of this group. It doesn't matter which one thought they were the greatest. 
Do we see the ridiculousness of this conversation of 12 people walking saying, I think I'm the greatest, I think I'm the greatest, when they are literally physically walking with the Son of God, the Creator of all creation, putting His feet on His creation, walking with them, and they have the audacity to say, I think I'm the greatest. I'm so glad. I'm so glad that we would never do that. I'm so glad that we never argue over who has the most value in the kingdom. I'm so glad that we never argue over which preacher is the best preacher. I'm so glad that we never argue over which song leader is the best song leader. Who says the best prayers? I hope you can tell that I'm being sarcastic. We do. This is not a problem that has went away. We still have issues with seeing value in the kingdom and still argue over who is going to be the greatest. But you want to know what's good about that? There's good things in that. The good thing in that is that because the problem is still here, the solution has not changed. We have the same problem they had. So what was the solution to their problem? The solution to their problem was the teaching that Jesus displays in verses 33-37. through When He says, if you want to be first, you have to be last. You have to be last to be first. If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. That's what Jesus starts to build up this mentality. Gold place, gold, the, the gold place, first place finish, the gold medal. I'll get that out in a second. Gold medal doesn't go to the guy that finishes the race first, is what Jesus is saying. He's not the one that is just powers through and pushes everybody out of the way, and he's the first one across that line. He says, no, the guy that gets gold is the one that finishes last. Why? What does that mean? How, how am I supposed to understand that? That goes against, that goes against everything that we understand about how you, you set value. The slowest guy in a race doesn't get value. I mean, maybe, maybe in this day we do. Everybody gets an award. But typically, when we're all being serious, no. The guy that's in last place, he gets shamed. He gets to look at everybody else standing up there on their podium and go, boy, I wish that was me. And the people on the podium get to stand up there going, ha ha, I'm better than you. That's how we view value. And Jesus is saying, no, that is not how we view value. He says it's the guy who's last. And he paints this picture. He illustrates this teaching with what I believe is the most beautiful picture of this concept found throughout the Scriptures. Ultimately, He's talking about servitude. And you might go, oh no, no. The best picture of servitude is John, John chapter 13 when Jesus he washes the feet of the disciples. Man, the humility in that picture of the Creator of man going, I'll wash your feet. That's, that's low. That's a servant. That's, that's humility. Or maybe you say, no, no. The, the greatest picture of, of, of humility and of servitude is God on the cross. Being held to that cross by, by, by nails, being, being tortured by, by men, and doing all this knowing that He could have called 10,000 angels and ended it right away. That's the greatest picture. And you know what? I do think all of those are great pictures. Maybe the greatest pictures but I believe the most beautiful picture is what we see in Mark chapter 9 and verse 36. He took a little child, set him in the midst of them, and when he had taken him in his arms, embracing this little child, Jesus paints 
the most beautiful picture of servitude. And for just a moment, do you stop and you think, man, what a lucky kid. I want to be that kid. I want to have Jesus Christ wrap His arms around me. I want to be embraced. I want to be held tight by Him. I want to find peace and I want to find security in His arms. What? What a beautiful picture that we see here. But maybe when we see this, we also think of kids in a very 21st century way. And if we do, I don't blame you because that's how I think of kids too. When I think of children, I think of these, I think of these little individuals that are cute and are dependent and, and are, are, are innocent. We look at them and say they, they, they can't do anything wrong even though they sometimes do. You just go, man, they're so innocent. They don't know better. They're harmless. You want to just grab them all and take them in your arms and hold on to them. But that's not the view of children that is found in this first century. We need to read the Bible contextually. We need to read the Bible in light of what the original recipients heard. And when you spoke of children in the first century, you did not see children the way we see them today. Today, children oftentimes have more rights than their parents. Children oftentimes have more rights than the elderly. Oftentimes, when, as, as we get old and, and we begin to, to, to grow out of society where we're a part of it in, in a way where we are, are active and working in it, we get pushed to the side. But that's not true about children. Children offer very little to society, but we bend over backwards to make sure that they have good educations, that they are well taken care of. We have whole government systems dedicated to taking care of children. This was not the case in the first century. Hence the reason why James talks about orphans and widows, about needing to be taken care of. So this is not the case that we read in the first century. In the first century, unless this child was your own, unless I'm talking about my son, my daughter, I view children as insignificant. Children can bring nothing to me. Now, I may go out and there's a gentleman on the street and he can help me and he has a societal status. He can give me something. Children cannot. Children had very little to no value in the eyes of the first century. And so for Jesus to grab a child and bring him into the midst of them and to wrap his arms around him was to say that this, this being that can offer me absolutely nothing he has value to me. He may not have value to you, but He has value to me. And definitely, we need to see that He's talking about children here. But we need to see the greater context of the picture that He's painting. True value doesn't come from what can be offered to me. True value comes from the way that I view myself in relation to others. That is the message that we see when he is depicting picking up and embracing a child. When we welcome, as servants of Christ, when we welcome others who have nothing to offer to us, we are saying that those who will be greatest are those who will be humble. Those who will serve the weak. Those who will serve the poor. Those who will serve and offer to those Things that they could never give back. And we need to see that that's true in a physical sense. And that's not hard for us to see. 
we drive around town, it doesn't take long to find people that have needs. It doesn't take long to find someone who maybe just has a very pressing need at that moment. Cars broke down, got a flat tire, had a car wreck. It doesn't take long to find people that have long-term needs. I don't have a home. I don't know where my next meal is going to come from. Becoming a servant and becoming a servant to all means that we look at those people in a different way than the world sometimes looks at them. To say, they can't offer me nothing. I'm not going to offer them anything. But this is especially true in a spiritual sense. When we look to others who maybe are stumbling, we look to those Christians that we might say are high-maintenance Christians, Christians that need constant care, Christians that need constant reminder what is right and what is wrong, Christians who, who don't come to services often, and we're constantly going to say, we miss you, we want you to come back, and maybe they'll come back for a while and then they're gone again. Christians who are knowingly walking in sin and need someone to go to them, those Christians don't typically offer much back in the way of fellowship. But how do we view them? Do we say, I sure am glad that I'm not like this publican. I sure am glad that I am righteous and I am holy and I am better. Or do we do like Jesus and do we embrace them knowing they're not going to give me anything back? They may end up hurting me to do so. But I'm going to care for this person. I'm going to serve this person to the best of my ability. That's what a follower of Christ is. A follower of Christ is a servant to all. And so, will we become servants or will we become superior? This is what Jesus meant for them. Whenever Jesus said, whoever wants to be first will be last, He was saying, make yourself least. Make yourself servants of others in the name of Christ and you will be glorified and you will be honored. And that last point, that last point really needs to be brought home. He says to them, this, he uses this statement as bringing one and receiving one, this little child, in my name. Sometimes we skip over. You know, Joe talked about verses that, that are easily missed. That's a phrase that's easily missed in this passage. In my name. Jesus is saying that you need to do these things via my authority. And immediately, John hears this statement and he goes to answer what Jesus has just said with saying, hey, we saw a guy who was casting out demons in your name, but he doesn't walk with us. He's not a part of this group here. So we told him to stop. And I want you to think about how Jesus responds to that statement. Because I'll tell you right now, that is a church statement. That is a mentality that we have in the church today. He's not a part of this group. He's doing things in the name of God, but He's not a part of this group. So we said, you stop doing those things in the name of God. Jesus says, don't do that. Do not forbid Him, He says. And there's two things that He's going to bring out in the next couple of verses. The first one is that whoever is doing something by My name or by My authority is not going to be able to speak evil of Me. So the first thing he does is he wants to bring up the connection that says, look, if he's working under my authority, he's not fighting against me. He's not trying to slander me like the Pharisees are. He's not trying to, to kill me like the, the Romans are going to be doing. He's not fighting me. In fact, it's very likely that 
What we read in Luke chapter 10 of Jesus sending out the 70 and giving them power to, to cast out demons and to heal and telling them to preach the Word, it's very likely this maybe is one of that 70 that has been given authority by Jesus to do these things. And so if that's the case, He's saying, look, I told Him to do this. But either way, whether that's the case or not, what He's telling them is if He's working under my authority, then then don't try to stop Him. The reason that John had an issue was not because of the authority by which he did what he did. The reason he had an issue with Him because he was not one of the twelve apostles. He was not walking with us, following us. He's not a part of us. And so it stems not from authority, it stems from elitism. Superiority. Again, missing the point. Like so many of the disciples were doing at this time of what Jesus was trying to get through to them. Make yourself least. He was saying He's not a part of us. He's doing things in your authority, but He's not a part of us, so we're telling Him to stop. Jesus says, you stop that. But I also want you to recognize this. He wraps up that saying in verse 41 with this phrase. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in My name, because you belong to Christ, surely I say to you, He will by no means lose His reward. So there's two things that He's bringing out. The first one was by authority. And we need to know that authority is not just invoking the name of Christ. It wasn't just that he said, I cast out this name or this demon in the name of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus makes that clear in Matthew chapter 7. Many people will do that. Many people on the day of judgment will say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do all these things in your name? And he will respond to them, Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So claiming something is with the authority of Christ doesn't make it the authority of Christ. Being within the law of Christ, being within His commandments, being within what He has authorized us to do, having His authority, that makes it in the name of Christ. And so Jesus says, one, He's doing things in My name, but two, even if He's just giving a cup of cold water in My name, He won't lose His reward. You know what He could have said? He could have said, you know, if he's casting out demons in my name, he won't lose his reward. If he's raising people from the dead, he won't lose his reward. If he is performing great miracles and great feats of service in my name, he won't lose his reward. But that's not what he said. He said, if he's given somebody a cup of cold water in my name because they belong to me, he won't lose his reward. We have a superiority complex as human beings, but it's especially seen in the church today. And we need to teach ourselves. We need to teach our children. We need to especially teach our daughters where value is found in the eyes of God. Who are the greatest in God's eyes? It's not me. It's not the preachers of this world. I tell you, there's a lot of preachers that would like you not to believe that who would like you to think that they are on some sort of pedestal, that couldn't be further from the truth. It is not the preachers, the pastors, the elders. It is not deacons. It's not the song leaders, the prayer prayers. It's not the guys that, that lead at the table. These are not the greatest in the eyes of God. Who are the greatest? It's the ones who serve without letting the right hand know what the left hand is doing. It's the ones 
who lessen themselves in their own eyes. It's the people who do things that never get recognition. Maybe even never, no one even finds out what they did. But God does. God sees it. So for, for those people who do things like prepare the communion bread, like clean the building, like take care of the, 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 the yard and take care of our, our flowers and, 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 and the things that, that sometimes we have the audacity to say don't matter. You know, I preached on that a few weeks ago. And I wasn't saying that those things don't matter. I was making sure we do those things for the right reason. But here's what I do want us to know about those things. Even though we might do stuff like that, even though we might give someone a hug whenever we see that, that they feel they're looking a little bit down, when we write a card because we know somebody's been sick, or go visit a shut-in, and no one ever says thank you. No one ever sees that. No one ever even thinks about you for those things. Jesus is saying, I do. I think about you. I see your servitude. I see your love. I see that you have a kingdom heart. And I want to say that you inspire me to try and lessen myself. To try and be more of a servant to others. And what a difference. What a difference that would make in our society if everyone came to this conclusion that it's not about me. It's about others. Think of the elders that we could have that I believe we can have here at Lake Street. Think of the eldership that we could have that says it's not about us. It's not about how great my qualifications are. I'm not saying qualifications don't matter. I'm saying the qualifications don't make me great. The church is great. And I'm going to serve the church in a leadership capacity. Think of the deacons that we could have that say, I'm not great because I can change light bulbs. I'm not great because I can reach the clock and adjust the time on it. I might be tall. Not great. What makes great deacons are deacons that say, this church, the things that need to get done, the people that need to be served, they are more important than me. Think of our marriages. If in our marriages we would look to one another and say, it's not about me. I'm the husband. The Bible tells me I'm the leader of the family. But it's not because I'm the greatest. It's because I'm commanded to be the least and to show by, by example, to serve the family in leadership. And what about our children? What kind of example could we set for our children? What kind of children could, could we produce if we would say, you all are greater than me? Now, the world does that. The world says, my children are greater than me, and, that, and because of that, I have to be their best friend, and I have to do everything to keep them happy. I'm not talking about that kind of greater. If I look to my children and say, I want you to set a better legacy than I set, to be more glorifying to God than I was, to be more holy than I was, and I am going to raise you up to the God of all creation to try and show you that. Serving you as a parent, which includes discipline, but also includes love and includes patience, includes mercy and grace. We teach our children with grace. We teach them to obey. What kind of families... What kind of differences could we make in the society if we understood Jesus' simple act of saying, become the least and embracing this child? I believe 
that we could make a great impact in our society. I want to read one more passage to you. I'm about to put this one on the board. Philippians chapter 2. And maybe that's hard to read, so if you want to follow along, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 is what we're reading. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy. Now I want to stop before I go on. Because what he's doing, he's doing one of my favorite things. He's being hypothetical. Of course, of course there's consolation in Christ. He's being, not hypothetical, he's being ironic. Of course there's consolation in Christ. Of course there's comfort in love. Of course there's fellowship in the Spirit. There is affection. There is mercy. We know these things to be true. And so if we know those things to be true, if this is true, what does he say? Fulfill my joy being, by being like-minded. Having the same love. Being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made Himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. And coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And therefore God also has highly exalted Him, given Him the name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Maybe you're asking today, how do I do what Jesus has said to do? How do I do Mark 9, verses 30-41? through I heard a joke the other day. And because it's Easter... And because Easter is surrounded with this concept of what I believe to be one of the most horrifying images of all, a six-foot bunny that goes around the yard laying eggs, I'll share this joke with you. How do you catch a unique rabbit? That's a pretty unique rabbit, isn't it? Six-foot tall laying eggs, that's unique. How do you catch, I know my, my boys know the answer to this. How do you catch a unique rabbit? Unique up on it. How do you catch a tame rabbit? The tame way. How do we do what Jesus has called us to do? Look at Holly, she's like, I can't believe that. How do we do what Jesus has called us to do? What's different? Nothing. It's the same today as it was then. It's what Peter or what Paul is teaching us in Philippians chapter 2. He's saying nothing has changed since the days of Jesus' life on this earth. It's the same thing. Esteem others as yourself. I apologize for that terrible joke. But I want us to know, nothing has changed. It is the same. That's what Paul's telling the Philippians. He's saying, you want to know how to be a servant to others? Do what Christ spoke of. Make yourself least. Do you want to be great in the eyes of God? Then have the mind of Christ. Have the mind of an obedient servant. A servant who was not too superior to come to earth. A servant who was not too superior to be made like man. A servant who was not too superior to be humble 
and to die for me and for you. And what has God done to him? Paul says he has exalted his name above all the names of the earth. And one day, one day, all those people who don't believe that, one day, all those people who just don't really care about that, all those people who are afraid to ever recognize that, one day, they're going to bow. We're going to bow. Everyone is going to bow. The question will be, will it be too late? It's not too late today. Today, we can become like Christ. Today, we can begin to have the mind of Christ in our own lives. How? We go right back to Mark chapter 8. What did He say? Whoever desires to come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me. When He says, take up His cross, that meant one thing. We have forgotten what the cross means oftentimes today. The cross is a fashion statement. The cross is a, something that we tattoo on our body. We tie around a piece of string and hang from our neck. And I'm, if you have those things, I'm not saying that that's wrong. What I'm saying is let's remember what it meant. When they heard cross, they heard the same thing that we hear when we hear electric chair. When we hear lethal injection, that means death. And that does not mean death in a righteous, humble sort of way. That, or, or, or glorious sort of way. That means the death of a, of a criminal. Death that nobody wants. Jesus says you take up that cross. You take up that death. And that's exactly what Paul goes on to tell the Romans. You know, majority of the talk about baptism in the New Testament is to those people who have already been baptized. Now Acts is full of accounts of baptism and people being saved and being cleansed from their sins. But everywhere else that we read it, we read about people who have already been baptized and they're being reminded, this is what your baptism did. And what did Paul tell the Romans in Romans chapter 6? He said, you remember the day you were baptized? You died that day. You picked up your cross. Are you still holding it? Are you still carrying it? Are you still dead in Christ? That's what we need to ask ourselves today. Have I taken up my cross? When I believe as Peter believed, that Jesus is the Son of God. And when I believe that because my life is so full of sin that there is nothing I can do to have a relationship with Him, and when I believe that He died to remedy that problem so that I could come into contact with His blood, so I could have that sacrifice for my sins, so that I could be made pure and holy and blameless, and so that on the day when every knee bows, my knee's the first one to the ground because it's been there in this life. Bowing to Him, submitting to Him, being humble, serving others. If that's your desire today, I want you to know that we can make that happen today. You can begin your walk with the Lord. You can die in baptism as Christ died and was buried, immersed in water, and raise as Christ was raised to a new life. A life that says, it's not about me. I'm going to be least. It's about everybody else. We want to help you with that today. If that is something that we can assist you with, know that it is our earnest prayer. It is our desire to not only help you with that today, but to walk with you the rest of your life 
pressing one another on to love and to good works. If we can do that, won't you please come forward and let us know as we stand and as we sing.